Good evening, Prince of Peace. Uh, you might have noticed a little bit of a contrast between the reading and the song that Amy played. Uh, that's intentional, and hopefully that'll become clear as we go on tonight. It is good to be speaking with you again, especially with such an interesting series going on this Lent. Uh, you may remember Pastor Natalia a few weeks ago, wondering why the story about uh, Jethro urging his son-in-law to take a break wasn't in the lectionary. Well, I think we all know why this story is not in the lectionary, which makes it fun. So let's dive in. Today's text requires some context before we even get into the good stuff. So here's a quick recap. Here's what's going on in Israel at the time. In the ninth century BCE, Israel had been split into northern and southern kingdoms after the death of King Solomon. The northern kingdom of Israel was also known as Samaria. And if you heard Pastor Chad, uh, talk about the Samaritan woman at the well on Sunday. Samaritans are descended from that northern kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom is known as Judah. Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had some promising cities and their own line of kings, obviously, but they didn't have the temple. Jerusalem was the holy city, and it was strongly encouraged, if not outright required by priests and prophets alike for folks to worship in the temple in the holy city of Jerusalem. Now to get around this and encourage development and trade in their own cities, northern kings from very early on started allowing worship in their own cities of idols like the golden calf. Bethel was one prominent place of this kind of idol worship. Now, Elijah was a very important prophet in the Northern Kingdom. He was so important, he was even operating a school for prophets, no joke, called Sons of the Prophet. Earlier in chapter two, these fellows are telling Elisha who is Elijah's foremost protege, essentially, you know your teacher is going to die soon, right? So the early part of the chapter is Elisha following his mentor around the northern kingdom for reasons that seem pointless on the surface, but begin to clear up as we move through. Because what's being portrayed here is really a succession problem. When Elijah is gone as the primary prophet of the one true God in the northern kingdom, the land of the golden calves, who will take up the mantle? Who will be there to call down God's fire on the prophets of Baal? For the authors of the book of Kings, where we find these stories, prophetic succession is really more important than kingly succession. In many ways, it's a matter of divine authority and the concept of a royal divine right to rule wouldn't come for many centuries. The book of Kings span the time of the time period from the split of the kingdom from north to south. The split is technically after Solomon's death, but really the intrigue begins with the death of King David. 
and on through the Babylonian conquest. So there's a lot of really interesting history here that we won't get into. Uh, it deserves more than five-second uh, paraphrase, but we'll just say both kingdoms greatly displease God, and prophets from both kingdoms end up blaming each other and sometimes themselves for their ultimate destruction. So back to Elijah and his very important issue of succession. Elisha has been following him around a bit and at one point asks for the double portion of Elijah's inheritance, which is basically Elisha asking for firstborn status. He wants to be the top dog prophet. Again, this is about succession. Remember, there is a whole school of potential rivals. Elijah has been spending his last days trying to shake Elisha, leading him on a seemingly pointless journey around the north, but Elisha sticks with it, and when that chariot carries Elijah up to heaven, as the story goes, we've probably heard that one, Elisha is literally there to pick up his mantle. He starts leading the school and doing his very important prophet thing, beginning by, this is cool, healing the water in Jericho. But when he travels to Bethel, he was met by those nasty boys in the text today. Now, if you look up this passage online, and I don't recommend that, you will see a lot of biblical apologists spending a lot of time and energy and many words explaining how the Hebrew doesn't necessarily specify the age of these boys. It's very important to these apologists. Maybe they were school age, but maybe they were in their 20s. It might be referring to assistance to the local Baal-worshipping clergy. Or perhaps these were simply rival sons of the prophets who did not witness Elijah's ascension and did not believe Elisha's claim to be legitimate. Now, they are right. The text doesn't specify, and it treats the event very nonchalantly. It expects no recoil or disgust from the audience. It's all very matter-of-fact and action and consequence. I don't want us to dwell too much on the Hebrew here. I think it kind of misses the point. At best, it just changes the tone of the story by a matter of degrees. If the enemies Elijah sought to Elisha sought to destroy were preteen or old enough to shave. In this, the season of Lent, what I'd like us to think about is, where do we find Jesus in this story? And the follow-up is, if we can't find Jesus in this story, how are we supposed to think about it? The Bible is a fascinating piece of literature. It is a compilation with many dozens of authors representing many different cultures and languages, probably at least 800 years apart at the widest margins. And together, it tells a compelling story. At least, I find it compelling. But we must be careful not to confuse descriptive stories with prescriptive stories. The story of Elisha and the bears tells us a lot of interesting things about the politics of the northern and southern kingdoms and actually says some interesting things about Jesus' later interactions with that Samaritan woman at the well, if we understand the context. But it does not tell us what God is like. As Christ followers, we have Jesus and the Holy Spirit for that. And so that is the lens through which we read all of Scripture. 
through that gospel lens, God is not like the enemy mauling bear. God is the enemy loving lamb. When we compare the Elisha approach with the Jesus approach, what a contrast we see. When Jesus and the Samaritan woman meet, they recognize their differences right away. And while she doesn't open with, why don't you join your prophets, you hippie? She does call him out for being a long way from Jerusalem. But instead of responding with a curse, Jesus seeks connection. He chooses this outsider, a Samaritan woman, to reveal his messianic purpose. And in so doing, he invites her into the kingdom. He chose trust over a display of power. Instead of exploiting division to gather influence, he sought reconciliation through a respect of diversity. Now, if I'm honest, I have to admit there is an appeal to the idea of having the sort of power to call out bears to maul my enemies. I mean, who's trying to be nice to bullies? But that isn't what I'm called to do. I am not called to seek a place of power like Elisha. Now, did the prophet Elisha actually call or conjure bears to maul 42 young fellows from Bethel that day? I have my own thoughts on this, but I'll let you decide for yourself. One thing I'm confident in, though, the authors of the Book of Kings needed to show, in the way of their culture and their day, the sorts of power displays that would establish Elisha's lineage as the prophet of the one true God of his time. That's why this story is here. That's why it's presented the way it is. That's Judaic history, and that's part of our faith tradition. But it is not prescriptive for us today as Christ followers. For that, we look to the gospel. We look to Jesus at the well with the Samaritan woman. We look to the ways Jesus calls all of us out of our brokenness, whether we consider that brokenness to be sin or simply a feeling of unbelonging or something altogether different that we still can't quite name. Jesus sees us and calls all of us in our beautiful diversity of race, culture, ethnicity, gender expression, sexuality, and ability to the crowded table of kingdom. In the next song we sing tonight, like we sang on Sunday, we will sing broken people, we can be made whole when we lay down our weapons, open up our hearts. Love is breaking us, love remaking us. So let this be a reminder to us that God leads with love and calls us to the same. Amen. <laughs>